Astonishing Legends would like to thank Best Fiends, Simply Safe, Quip, Mint Mobile, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. In October of 2016, two not so young men were entering their second year as podcasters. Halloween was approaching, and having built a modest audience, they felt compelled to produce something particularly dark and interesting that year. So they chose to cover the story of the Mothman and the tragic collapse of the Silver Bridge around Christmas of 1967 in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. One does not simply talk about the Mothman without invoking the Touchstone 2002 film adaptation of John Keel's The Mothman Prophecies. So, of course, those two not-so-young men, Scott and Forrest, made frequent references to it in Astonishing Legends' first five-part series on the Mothman that they pretended was four parts by calling the last two parts 4A and 4B. You know, this is the cheesiest cold open. Why am I reading this in the third person? Just keep going. Just keep going. It's great. Oh, man. All right. All right. Sorry. Got to get serious here. Hold on. Little did Scott and Forrest know, the man who adapted Keel's book into a screenplay was listening. And when he heard his name mentioned during an episode, he nearly ran his car off the road. Since then, Richard Haddam, or Rich, as we like to call him. I, mean, I think everyone calls him Rich. Just stick to the script. Stick to the script. <laughs> Don't throw in yeah, your own stuff it's here. Come because on. it's such a gem. All right, here we go. <laughs> uh, has been a guest on Astonishing Legends numerous times, and we frequently find him just sitting in the driveway outside of Blanket Fortiana, reading books in his car with a flashlight. Rich, however, was not the only person that would enter the Astonishing Orbit in 2016. Another individual, Rob Christopher, Rob Kiss, Christ, why do I always have a, I can say Chris, Chris Christopher, same thing. Yeah, I know. This is different though. Yeah. Another individual, Rob Christopher. I like to give Sarah like 50 takes on one sentence that, every yeah. session. Yeah, that are all the same. I know she appreciates that. <laughs> I know. Another individual, Rob Christopherson of the Our Strange Skies podcast was incessantly tweeting obscure UFO facts at Scott and Forrest that year as well. Eventually, they invited him to join the Astonishing Research Corps to both unmuck up their Twitter feed and also become Astonishing's in-house UFO expert. Before too long, someone started a Twitter DM group between the four of them, and somewhere along the way, Forrest was talking about the legend of Alexander the Great's UFO encounter, and Rob chimed in to point out that story was bunk. Rich then dubbed our group the Fortean Buzzkills. More on that in tonight's show. Rob has been a guest on the show many times as well, and we have been on his as well. Rich has also been a guest on Rob's show. This is not in the third person anymore. And on top of that, this is really confusing. No, just just go with it. People can follow it. Trust me. Uh, me. I can't follow it. All right. I'm sorry. All right. Take two. Here we go. Rob has been a guest on the show numerous times, and we have been on his as well. Rich has also been a guest on Rob's show. If Rich had a show, we'd probably be guests on his show too. But to date, he does not. Okay, this is what this is the worst piece of crap you've ever written. <laughs> Just you're almost done, man. All right, now uh, this is it. Bring it home. Narrator uh, voice. Do your narrator right. voice. Right. I wish I could do this. I, I can't do it. Mm. You gotta do it. It's a strange time in the world right now. Personal schedules have been upended. And it just seemed like a good time to have both Rich and Rob on Astonishing Legends to talk shop, as it were. Welcome to the 14 Buzzkills and Rich Roundtable 
number one. That was great. I like that one. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I don't know why I agreed to do this episode. From me, Forrest Burgess, which I think I've said before about a few other episodes, and it was also said by Rich Haddam, I think, when we first had him on. Join us tonight as we welcome back good friends of the show, Rich Haddam and Rob Christofferson, for a kitchen sink roundtable with very few rules and no outline, really, because of that one guy on iTunes says we're overproduced now. And we're back. No housekeeping really tonight, other than I wanted to dedicate this show to two musical giants who recently passed away, John Prine and Hal Wilner. If you think you haven't heard of John Prine, it might be because he was best known as a songwriter, but if you like music, you've listened to his songs. Angel from Montgomery, Bruised Orange, In Spite of Ourselves. Uh, And if you haven't heard them, pull them up on Spotify. Well, there's tons of beautiful versions of them. Be sure and listen to Prine singing them himself. Forrest and I had the very good fortune to see Prine at the Greek Theater in Los Angeles in 2016. It was the only time I got to see him perform, but it was a fantastic show, and I'll certainly never forget it. Hal Wilner was far less famous than Prine, but not only was he friends with Prine, he was a massive influence for decades in the music world, and more than that, Hal was a dear friend of my wife. Hal and my wife worked together for nine years at Saturday Night Live, and we would sometimes see him in Los Angeles as well after she left the show where he had what I would honestly call one of the last little original shack-like bungalows on the canals in Venice Beach, which was surrounded by huge multi-million dollar homes. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was a rental. As a music supervisor for SNL right up until his passing, he was a genius, but he was also a music producer with an uncanny ability to take artists that you would never think of working together and invite them to create beautiful collaborations in the form of tribute albums. In fact, this is what he was most known for. My wife was around him a ton more than I was, but in the handful of times that I had the privilege of hanging out with him, I marveled at his encyclopedic knowledge of all genres of music, going back to the beginning of recordings, as well as the way his mind was able to mix and match genres and artists, much like Jackson Pollock would sling paint in every direction to create a masterpiece. On top of all of this, Hal was a sweet, kind, and generous man that made you feel calm just by entering the room, and he was far too young to die. You can tell a lot about him by reading his last tweet, which he wrote as he suffered from the coronavirus in his apartment in New York City. This was just nine days before he died. It's it's not about him at all, but about his friend John Prine, who was also suffering from corona. Sending love to John Prine, who is in critical condition with COVID-19. John is a music giant. His songs are as good as it gets, and he's a spellbinding performer. Send good thoughts his way. And then Hal goes on to quote Prine. I sound like that old guy down the street that doesn't chase you out of his apple tree. Hal Wilner and John Prine both passed away on April 7th, 2020, and it's a great loss for all of us. Yeah, I was sorry to hear that, my friend. Before it's over, this is going to touch all of us at some point, whether it's someone we know personally or legends we wished we knew personally. But rest assured, at some point, it will be over. Okay, folks, uh, let's lighten up a little tonight (laughs) with this freeform show. I'm going to roll the round table. Uh, Forrest, get ready. I think Sarah left some outtakes in it. Oh, boy. Okay. Thanks, good. Um, Um, Everyone ready? You ready, Forrest? Mm -hmm. Yep. So here we go. Five, 
four. Everyone say it. Everyone okay. say the numbers together. All right. Five, five four, three, three two, two, one. God. That's Those beautiful. Are the most spaced out claps of all time, but hopefully that'll give her something. Well, you know, there's just, a I'll, delay. I'll put a marker on mine here. There's a delay. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So. <clears throat> I'd like to welcome everybody to the first Fortean Buzzkills and Rich Roundtable, number one, <laughs> with Astonishing Legends here. We wanted to do a little bit of a lighter show this week, since everything else in the world is dark, <laughs> including our show last week. So we're just going to, we wanted to uh, get together and talk about some current paranormal topical events and also what's going on in our own personal lives. That's the driest introduction of all time, so I'm going to be quiet now. And also, we're recording video of this on Zoom which we will make available at least on Patreon. I'm not sure if I'm going to put it anywhere else, but we'll see. I, I doubt even that after we what? actually review it later. Yeah. Come on, who doesn't want this? <laughs> well, you'd be surprised. Yeah. At this point, we would definitely like to welcome back Rich Haddam and Rob Christofferson, who have both been on the show before. You guys, everybody knows Rich is the... Screenwriter's been on the show a bunch. He adapted the Mothman prophecies. He also writes for Titans. He is best friends with Bender. And we'd also like to welcome back Rob Christofferson from Our Strange Skies, among other shows. Both of these guys, very prolific in many ways, podcasts and otherwise. So hello, guys. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, man. How's it going? Uh, it's going good. <laughs> bon Jovi has been standing over my shoulder for a while now. <laughs> which uh, those of you who don't have video can't see. Uh, I just wanted to make it a little more. I'm still working on designing a set. You're on radio, essentially. So your descriptions of, of visual things, most people won't know what you're talking about. <laughs> the very first thing I said was those of you that are listening won't be able to see this. Except that you, you said that Rich was a friend of Bender and then didn't explain that. I don't have to. That can just be a weird thing. Yeah, it could just be a weird thing. Could be, exactly. It could be any Bender. Could be, you know, Albert K. Bender. Could be, yeah. you know, any oh, other kind yeah. of Bender. <laughs> yeah. I like, uh, there's a couple of Benders in my life. All right, then. But let me help yeah. you out here. Let me Let me draw a picture for you. A few minutes before we started recording, Rob and I were remarking on how scary it was in Scott's visual square. There's so much room behind him. It just has that classic <laughs> horror movie thing where it's like something scary is going to happen behind him. You know, there shouldn't be that much space. And so he, <laughs> and he went and set up a Bon Jovi poster. And I got to say, it has made the room a little scarier. <laughs> It is, yeah. Scott, won't you explain uh, what that poster is? It's not just from your childhood. <laughs> no, it's not. Although no, it's from I, I did like Bon Jovi. This is actually a prop from a sketch that my wife wrote while she was at Saturday Night Live. She wrote the sketch that I, I think it was Amy Poehler was playing a little kid in her bedroom. And she has this poster, this very poster or a copy of it on her closet door. And he steps out of it into the because he was hosting that week. So oh, the, the weird thing is, and for those of you that can't see this, you won't know this, but he's wearing one of his outfits from a Slippery When Wet tour. Yeah. He actually brought that. This is not vintage Bon Jovi. This is Bon Jovi that came back many years later to Saturday Night Live. And he dug this outfit out of his wardrobe and wore it for the poster <laughs> and for the sketch. So, so was he pretty good? Was he like a nice guy? He was. They loved him. The only thing that I remember happening that was particularly funny, and uh, you know, I hope it's okay for me to talk about this, because they were the musical act as well, and was that him and Richie, they had some kind of argument, and as a result, I think didn't play their second song or something. I can't remember what happened. <laughs> well, I mean, I, that's why Richie's not in the band anymore. So. <laughs> 
Yeah. So that was a long time ago. Yeah. So I just want to get a little color in this room. I, mm. I have some ideas for a set that I'm going to work on. But mm. So yeah, let's talk about your room, Rich. Where are you in your home here? Uh, I'm in my office. And so the way I'm set up now would be me sitting at my desk. So if I was working, I would be in exactly this position typing. I'm usually not working in my home office. But I'm usually at my office office, which I also try to set up in a cool way. But here, let me, I'll turn my computer around so you can see what I'm looking at, okay? Oh, yeah. It's a nice, that's an impressive bookcase. See, that's what I need. I've got Bon Jovi. You have yeah. actual books over there. No, those aren't books. Why are those all um, the same yeah. size? Yeah, yeah they're all the no, they're size. all books. Yeah. Yeah, he oh. reads. Are you buying books that are all exactly the same size? Well, no, but some of the, like you were looking at like my Lee Child first editions and James oh, yeah. Lee Burke. And, oh, cool. And I also wrap all my first editions in that Mylar. They're called mm. Broad Art book covers. But it, mm. it'll, like if you look at it, it looks like I live in a bookstore because they're all covered in that plastic. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was Well, thinking. where's your People's Choice Award though, Rich? I don't have a People's Choice Award. I don't have any awards. I've literally- You didn't I get a Webby? No awards. No, I got nothing. <laughs> See, you you're not one of the, uh, the usual folks that have the Emmy on the shelf in the background so you could see it. The, no. And the no, Cable no, Ace yeah. Award. If I did, I would I would wear it like around my neck, like a giant medallion. <laughs> and it would be with me always. We entered, was that the Webbies? We entered this year for the first time and it's like, the it's promptly canceled. I mean, they're still doing it, but like no one's oh, going for, anywhere for now. For podcasts? So, yeah, for podcasting and... <laughs> Wouldn't that I've be been the meaning one? to do it for a couple of years, yeah. but it's you have to fill things out and send things in, including money. And I was just like, okay, we'll do that this year. And now coronavirus. Well, yeah. isn't that the one award show that you could do remotely out of? Yeah, it does seem <laughs> you, that way. It does not yeah. really need a, a ceremony mm. in an auditorium. Maybe not. Podcasters... <laughs> I mean, this is like now the golden moment, isn't it? Well, it depends on what we do with it. Uh, we're we're probably ruining that right now. <laughs> we're squandering <laughs> it, but you know, that's what I like to do. Before we get into some of the things that we were going to talk about tonight, I'm just going to kind of shoot the breeze and take it easy and just try to keep people entertained <laughs> as best we can. How has the current lockdown affected you guys individually? Rob, how about you go first on that? It has not changed Rob's life at all. I'm just going to do it, okay? <laughs> yeah, Rich is going to talk for me. <laughs> um, he's 100% correct. It really hasn't changed a lot in my life. I still get up. I go to work every day. I work in a nursing home, so we are essential. We're 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so getting up every day to go to work come home, be an introvert, because I don't want to talk to people out in the street. That's just the way I am. It's nothing against you personally, but that's me. Uh, I go to the grocery store maybe once a week now. I try to limit it to that, but that is my life. Oh, I make podcasts. I'm still going strong with that because I got to have something to do. Are there any special procedures at the nursing home at work during this crisis? You have to wear a mask. All the time, doesn't matter where you go, but they could be a little scarce. We're all right now. We got enough supply as it is, but uh, they've kind of just isolated the residents that live there as best they can. You know, they do their best to maintain social distancing and we're taking all the necessary precautions to uh, try and prevent this virus from coming in the building. Sure, sure. Rob, have you asked them, is it okay if you wear a Halloween mask? I've tried, (laughs) and I guess the CDC does not recommend Halloween masks. I'm going to write an effusive letter campaign when this whole thing is over. We're going to get that changed. (laughs) 
it's, it's certainly not your Grim Reaper outfit. <laughs> no, no, I have, I do have a Where's Waldo costume somewhere you know, <laughs> well, lying around. I can just picture Rob walking into a room full of the elderly with the Jason hockey mask on. You know, I used to have one. <laughs> one thing uh, with both Rob and Rich is that, in light of people doing a lot more listening now to podcasts. You, both of you have been on a lot of other people's shows already uh, as guests. Mm-hmm. Rob, what have you been on? I had planned to take the month of March off because I had just like overworked myself. And then this virus hit and I was like, no, I got to do something. I can't just sit back and do nothing. So uh, before I decided that, I ended up appearing on the podcast uh, based on a true story to talk about the first season of Project Blue Book, uh, which is, you know, it's a fun show on the History Channel. I've been on Chris Williamson's Me and My Friends show. We got to talk about UFOs and, and all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, yeah, I've been on a few different pods, so not going too crazy. I got to talk to some people. <laughs> Remotely anyway. Yeah. Uh, what was your experience like at Project Blue Book for the TV show, right? It was fun because like, uh, I basically you know brought to the table these like the real incidents that these episodes were based on and and some of them are really interesting some of them are obscure there was uh, one involving this florida scoutmaster that ended up having this really intense ufo incident down in the florida everglades and it uh, became this big tizzy at uh, project blue book there for a second and to downplay it Edward Ruppelt at the time basically just said that this guy was the greatest hoaxer ever so (laughs) (laughs) that's always your go-to yeah, yeah, it's in the back pocket. Rob, are you like an advisor on the show or No, no, I was just doing research to uh talk about the show. I I have no affiliation oh, oh, with okay. the show. But if they want to get in touch, I am well versed about the cases that our UFO dad J Allen Heineck was involved in. So, yeah. they can reach out our strange guys at gmail.com just hit me up. I'm Best fine. source there is out there. <laughs> so, right before uh Titan started up, when that show was getting going, I made a big effort to be the showrunner. So I went in, I had a number of meetings, I brought all my UFO books. I'm like, this would be great. It was one of the few things I've ever really went out for, like, oh, I want to do this. I really want to do it. And then the Titans job came up and it looked like they weren't going to make a decision on Blue Book for a little while. And then I was like, oh, I better just, yeah, this probably ain't going to happen. So then I went on Titans in July And then probably around Labor Day, they found someone to run the show and now they're doing it. So that's one of those weird things that, you know, and this happens every once in a while where it's like, oh, that's the road not taken. And so I I look at that show and I haven't watched any episodes yet because I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'm going to get too emotionally involved (laughs) with like, oh, wait, I would have done it differently. Why are they doing it like this? No, no, no. And I'm like, it's got to live and let live. It's like hearing stories about the person you were interested in dating, dating someone else. What do you mean they went to a a tropical vacation? That could have been me. Hi, this is Adam from Hinkley, Illinois. When I get some quiet time after putting my kids to bed, I listen to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. So, Rich, what's going on with Titans now? Are you, you guys are in production right now, or what's going on there? Okay, so the schedule was the first day of production for season three was going to be tomorrow. Actually, before you do this, for listeners who don't know what Titans is, why don't you give a brief overview of oh, the show? Titans is a live-action, big-budget superhero show 
on DC Universe and Netflix. So in America, it's on DC Universe. You have to subscribe. And everywhere else, it's on Netflix. And then eventually, it'll be available on Netflix in America. But it's a really cool, really beautiful, fun, exciting, interesting show that we are now working on season three. And we've been writing and sort of in the story prep portion of the show for the like the last couple of months. And we were supposed to start filming in Toronto tomorrow. And then two weeks ago, of course, that all changed and they hit the pause button. Now it looks like it's going to be at least a few months before we start filming. Because when you're filming something, there's, you know, I mean, you've got a whole crew, you've got 100, 200 people all standing around, you've got people in meetings, you've got, I mean, it's, it's very, there is, social distancing would never work. Right. But production on all of your favorite shows is shut down now production on movies, my friend. Every show, every movie, everything yeah. that's live action is shut down. Everything is live action because they all require groups of people in the same environment. Right. But one thing that does work is animation. And I just saw another story coming out of Hollywood that shows like Family Guy and The Simpsons are still going as well as Scott's uh, wife's Bless the Hearts on Fox. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's in full tilt production, working on Zoom, just like we are now daily with her writer's room and doing edits on Zoom and all that stuff. I'm just glad she's here with me on the East Coast. We got her out of LA pretty much at the last possible moment. So we're at least we're sequestered together as opposed to spread out across the country. But yeah, she's still, her show is business as usual. And right. with her being on the East Coast now and uh, the bulk of everyone else being on the West Coast, you know, her days are centered around late starts and late evenings, which is, you know, oh, right. but at least she's working. Everybody's working in there. I think they're all glad to keep going, just like we are in the podcasting world. And Well, what is she, I mean, like, how does the room, I mean, I, I know my room experience, but I, I'm wondering about a comedy room. Like, is she finding it more difficult than usual? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, there's a different dynamic. Obviously, as you know, Rich, from being in a writer's room, it's all about the atmosphere in the room and yeah. how, what mood people are in because everyone is their own audience. All these people are have, in the past, they've performed in front of live audiences and they feed off that. That's what makes the comedy work. So when you're all split up and you're in these little cubes, it is different. Yeah. But, you know, it seems to still be working. You know, I'm in the other end of the house recording with Forrest. Usually we're running two Zoom conferences at the same time a lot of the time. And uh, I hear them all laughing and they seem to be getting it done, which is strange. I think a lot of them, they're probably just maniacally laughing because they're so freaked out and and are glad at least that they're home where they're safe for one thing or another, because I think the last day they went in the office, they were like, why are we here? You know, I yeah. mean, it's a bunch of comedy writers. <laughs> so we got to get out of here. Um, the experience of doing the writer's room on Zoom, for me at least, is A, we do get work done. So stuff does get accomplished and we're we're meeting every day and right. creating material and then reviewing that material, but working as a room to break new stories. But it is exhausting because it's not, you don't get the energy really in the same way of being right. in a room with people, at least I don't. No, and I'm sure she doesn't either. It's weird. It's like, we've talked about the fact that at the end of the day, and we're only going four, sometimes five hours, but usually four hours, we're exhausted. I mean, like burned out and physically tired in a way I never was at work when we were meeting in Santa Monica because it was like, oh, I'm just hanging out with friends all day. But it's something is more concentrated yeah. when you're on Zoom. It's like, okay, we're showing up for a meeting and you can see yourself and you can see the other people, but it's like, okay, well, this is a meeting. We need to get something done. And so joking goes yeah. way down. I don't know. It's tough. 
Yeah, no, well, it's, it's interesting because uh, that is the production, the actual physical creation of something that is not yet the finished product. You're coming up with ideas that all takes collaboration and and riffing off each other and bouncing ideas off one another. And so that can be done. It's a little different, I would say, because as now people know, Scott has been on the East Coast. I'm on the West Coast. And what we do when we finally get together in the studio or used to is the finished product. What ends up on mic is what's going out in the air with a, a lot of heavy editing because we fumble so much, Scott and I do, but that's it. So there's a dynamic there because people ask this uh, a lot. How is it when you're recording remotely between the two of you? Well, I think it's essential or it really helps for me to see Scott. So that's why we use Zoom because yeah, you do get facial cues, some hand signals. Scott's <laughs> making the moose antlers uh, with his hands right now. That's not his face. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. Yeah. Well, there's all that too, uh, you know, over video Skype and, uh, and Zoom. But you also have some kind of conversational dynamic when you're face-to-face with people. And especially when Rich was over here and we did Orfeo Angelucci and some of the other topics we've covered there is a conversational dynamic that only happens when you're face to face with people and and near them. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a filter between that. So we're able to do that. But it is yeah, people ask me all the time is like, is it better to be in person? And I think yeah, you, you lose a tiny bit, but you can still get it done. I did want to say we've been getting a lot of inquiries from people podcasters especially who hadn't had to do distance recording before or trying to get into the game now, which because a lot of people are listening and a lot of people are home where they could be recording. And we're getting uh, tech questions. And I just wanted to quickly say there's a lot of different ways to solve all these problems, way more now than when we started. There's a lot more software now that's geared towards podcasters. One of the best ones, probably, if you're just starting out with distance recording, and Rob, you can even speak to this more than than we do, is mm-hmm. uh, Zencaster, Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. My first experience with it was a couple years ago. I just used it to record a friend just to make it easier on his end, uh, who was a guest on the show. A few months ago, I was a guest on America's Next Top Podcaster, this podcast uh, that these guys do. It was it was a lot of fun as a uh, like a reality competition show. And uh, they recorded like 10 of us at once with Zencaster. It worked really well. And we're using it now to record Rich because he's technically inept. So that <laughs> is good. <laughs> Mostly technically. (laughs) But you use it a lot, right, Rob? Yeah, I've used it a fair amount when, uh, you know, I'm interviewing someone that generally doesn't have a, you know, a setup of their own. I'll use that. Uh, A lot of the times it's easier as long as you have great internet and as long as you stay on it long enough to make sure that everything buffers again. I also use... um, a program on Skype too, right? which I used to record with Rich yesterday. Yeah. We record with Pro Tools, which is uh, overkill really for podcasting. The only reason we use it Mm -hmm. is because we used to edit video and it's more familiar to us. And then to connect our audio at broadcast quality, we use a program called Source Connect, which is what voiceover artists and all these guys use. But it's kind of high end. It's also overkill, but we like it because it's stable and gives you a direct connection to the other end. I want to get something not super expensive, but because I end up going on your show and Rob's show and other shows, yeah, like a microphone or whatever a, a setup would be that would allow me to sound like I'm right there with you. I know that would be great. What's the recommendation 
because I'm probably going to just order it today. Well, the trickiest thing with you, Rich, and this is the case with a lot of people, is that you have a very stripped down computer, so it's portless, really. It has no ports on it, which makes it right. a little more difficult. <laughs> but, but it's got the audio, it's got that little audio jack. It but, does. But like what I was saying to Rob was, I was thinking of getting, there's got to be a USB port like adapter that goes into an audio jack so I can then take whatever the microphone with the USB plug it into the thing mm. plug that into the thing does that make sense yeah i mean yeah because you have essentially you have the three ring headphone jack which apple has which allows you st- two stereo channels to listen and then also a microphone channel and you're wearing an apple headset now which yeah. is plugged into your computer right yes yes so yeah you can probably get higher end versions of that kind of headset, which might be your best bet, really. And then the more money you spend, a lot of times the better they sound, especially if it's like Mm -hmm. a a professional conferencing headset that people who work from home all the time might use, like in customer service or something. That probably would be one of your best bets. But just with a normal audio jack like I've got. Uh, Yeah, I don't know if there's USB adapters that work like my father, for example, he's a headhunter. He helps people find jobs, uh, specifically mm. in, in engineering. And he has this big, crazy headset. But when I talk to him, it sounds amazing. But it's like wearing a pilot's headset in an airplane, yeah. but it sounds really, really yeah. good. The over-the-ear cans, like Forrest and Rob are wearing right now, that's good because that keeps the incoming sound from bleeding into your microphone, which can also be mm-hmm. a problem. When somebody's talking loud, it comes yes. out and it goes into the can like that. So I have okay. in-ear monitors, which I just got that close that sound out too. Can you just like send me a link for what, like a headset or, I mean, yeah. like when you say like high end, like, are you talking like hundred, like more than a hundred dollars or less than a hundred dollars? No, I, mean, I think I'm, they're probably in the, probably between a hundred and 200 range is oh, what I'm fine. guessing for a mm. really good sounding one, I would guess. I haven't looked in a while. And I'm happy to spend that because, I mean, with what you guys pay me when I come on, I mean, that's... Listen, I swear (laughs) to you, I mailed that check (laughs) a few weeks ago. I don't know why it's not there yet. Let's just give it a few more weeks. (laughs) And if it doesn't come... But that check, that's for the first episode we did, right? Yeah, yeah, a couple years ago. A couple years ago. Right, okay, so that one's... And then the others... But it's I did mail it. But the other ones will come sort of like every six months, but not only a portion of the Yeah, they're staggered. Right, that's for my taxes because... Yeah, yeah, we just want it to be easier for you. ...influx of money... To the degree that you guys are paying me, yeah, it could change my your tax bracket. Get, yeah. yeah, you're going to have to launder that. Yeah. Well, we're looking yeah. into a, a, a off the books a dark web a cryptocurrency to get set. Oh, up right, with. no, no, because yeah. I would prefer Bitcoin. Yeah, we'll get, we'll but work not on American that. Bitcoin. I want like you know some sort of maybe Japanese Bitcoin. <laughs> All right, <laughs> we'll see what we can do. <laughs> well, here's one thing: a solution that what I did at home is there are a lot of USB mics that are pretty good, then that means that you can plug the mic directly into a USB port, which I think on the new MacBooks, you'll have a a port that comes out that will pigtail, or you can buy an adapter that lets you have uh, several different devices plugged into that one USB or lightning connector. And what you can do is just get a separate set of headphones or, or what you're using now and have a separate mic situation, which is what I do at home. So oh, okay. I think it's worth explaining because a lot of people do ask us uh, what we're using. Uh, we have Shure SM7Bs, and those are more of a studio professional mic which you cannot directly plug into a USB socket, you need to go through a digital audio interface. And we use the Duet by Apogee, which uh, then translates that signal into a digital signal that can be recorded by your laptop. Yes. That's another solution there. People, yeah, you don't have to get a headset. That's an all-in-one solution if people are thinking about that. But also, uh, I've heard a bunch of podcasts when we were starting out that use gamer headsets, and it's it just doesn't cut it for me. And uh, and I that was one of the first paranormal podcasts I'd ever listened mm-hmm. to. It was two guys, and mm-hmm. they just sounded like, yeah, they were 12-year-olds from the Netherlands 
yelling at you on a on a video game. So okay. there are pretty decent mics that are around a hundred dollars to two hundred dollars that will directly. Yeah, that's plug like in. a Yeti or somebody like that. If yeah. you have USB ports, unlike Rich, if you have USB ports, there's a lot more choices to make. Okay. But Rich, I was being specific to yours, which is you have the headphone jack, you know. Well, which is better though? I mean, should I just go get an, a thing with the USB port adapter and then just do that? I, I think, think the, Forrest, a mic. Forrest is like, I want you to spend like 1200 bucks. No, no, no. Like I just said that they, there's a lot of good brands out there. Just uh, read the reviews. All right. You know, well, Google reviews. Me- but there's a lot of good solutions, I guess, for what I'm saying for people out there who don't know how to get started. And Yeti is a good one. That's that's a decent ready to plug in mic. And then okay. you'll need some kind of recording program on your computer. The important thing to remember in your case where you only have the mini jack is, is that you have to convert the signal from digital to analog because the mini jack is an analog signal going into your computer and a USB microphone is a digital signal. And that's why we have boxes because the boxes are doing the job of... <laughs> and Rich is pretending to... Yeah, let's get... You're right. Yeah. Let's, let's go. <laughs> Clear... All right, let's move on. Yes. Um, <laughs> we're going to rely on Rich to tell us when the show is getting super boring. <laughs> you're losing He's got to do his them. whole uh, shebang thing in 30 minutes. That's Wait, I'm not doing any shebang. How dare you with no, my No, I mean, your, your, your usual show, It's that one of the first terms, which was funny, is that uh, uh, when we had Rich uh, out for dinner, and I, I think it was uh, Scott's wife, he's like, hey, I'm a 30-minute person. You're an hour person. So that's the type, the length of the show is that it's a lot different than how you write and because you have to accomplish some goals by the end of 22 written minutes or whatever it is for a half hour show as opposed to we have a whole hour here. And, and if you look at us, it's like we try to keep it under three hours. So well, that's a question, Rich. Actually, for Titans, you guys, since you're streaming, do you have to worry about like later if it's uh, syndicated like commercial breaks? Do you make each episode well, a certain length? Because I, I, I can't know, remember. You'd think I would know the answer to that question. And, and at yeah. first we thought we could go long. But then we started hearing, no, no, we're trying to keep it down to the normal 41, 42 minutes. Yeah, 42. That's what I thought it was for an hour. But then we've done episodes that are shorter, then we've done episodes that are slightly longer. So with us, it really comes down to, well, it comes down to cost because to do a 59-minute episode where all 59 of those minutes feels justified, then that's a very long script. That's more shooting days. That's more... A lot of money. money. That's just yeah. more money. You're, it's like we're going to need more special effects and CG effects. And and then suddenly the budget for that episode is actually bigger. You can't – it's not just like, no, just put in more scenes or just make the scenes longer because there's a consideration about the length of any given scene. You can't just take a scene that ideally should be about 20 seconds and make it a minute and 20 seconds because you're going to feel that extra minute and it's going to affect the quality of that particular episode. So the answer right. is – we're kind of a normal show. You're going to get right. about 40 to 45 minutes of filmed entertainment with every episode of Titans. That's why I'm glad I make a podcast by myself. I, it's, <laughs> yeah. This is all way too involved for someone like me. I'm just like having conversations with myself. Hey, buddy, right. go read this book. Take some notes. Write this out. Go record it. Edit it. Put it out. I mean, it's that simple. Yeah, that is the luxury of podcasting is that you, uh, and I think why people enjoy it, because there aren't any restrictions placed on the length or what's talked about other than the person producing the podcast. And, you know, sometimes if you've got a 63 second piece of film, you need 16 and a half hours to discuss it, to decide (laughs) if it's legit or if it was a guy in a costume, you know, so... (laughs) 
<laughs> well, let, well, let's get to that. Yeah, I'm looking at your outline here. This is uh, yeah. it's an impressive three quarters of a page. Um, and <laughs> I don't have much I can say because I didn't get to really prepare at all for <laughs> this today because I was busy trying to get the new computer to work. He's so. been all technical. So what, what we have here, this is a, a beat down reaction because Scott would yell at me. It's like, this outline is 60 pages long. What are you doing? <laughs> it's like, well, that's two episodes for one thing. And uh, it's just everything you need to say. So just say what's on the page. Page. But here we have two pages, and it's just each of our names and one item to talk about each because yeah. we didn't really plan ahead. But there are some things that are happening in the news uh, in the world of uh, Fortean endeavors and interests. Since we're doing that, let's talk about the name of our little impromptu group, which is really just assigned to a Twitter DM group that the four of us are in. It's called the Fortean Buzzkills and Rich. Uh, I would like to know, I can't quite remember how this name came around, but I think we should explain it. Well, let's start by just reminding listeners who Charles Hoy Fort was. You want to take that, Rich, or...? Yeah. um, In the uh, late teens and early 20s of the previous century, he wrote a series of books beginning with The Book of the Damned, where he collected all these little bits and pieces of information, little news stories from around uh, the country and the world that referred to unexplained phenomenon, which was not even a term at that point. But basically, these were things that happened that don't seem to fit into any box in your science drawers, if you will. And he referred to them, uh, these little bits of information, as the damned, because these were things that science couldn't explain, uh, like when fish fall from the sky, or things that we recognize as reports of strange animals, ghosts, UFOs, things like that. And philosophically, he was making the point that if you're going to study physical phenomenon, which is what materialist scientific research is all about, then you can't just exclude a bunch of stuff because it either A, seems to refer to some kind of paranormal phenomenon, which is the enemy of science, or he just can't explain it yet. So his argument was, well, there's got to be a place for this stuff. And if science rejects it, then I'll accept it and I'll publish books about it. And of course, the reaction was science lost their and said, this is all garbage and crazy, and this fort guy is a crank. And so then for the last hundred years, people like you guys and me and a bunch of others have gone, oh, that's really interesting. Okay, so there's something in between traditional organized religion and traditional materialist science. There's all that stuff in the middle that hasn't been explained yet, and therefore there's a lot of podcasts. Right, and so they (laughs) call that Fortean and named for him, right? Yeah. So how do we get to the buzzkill part? You guys are a bunch of buzzkills. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll recount this because I remember the exact conversation. One thing that Forrest has brought up on many episodes of Astonishing Legends, and I listened back to the Delphos Ring episode, and you brought it up on there. It's the story that was largely populated in like the 1960s and 70s that Alexander the Great had encounters with UFOs, which is not true. It's just not true at all. And, and well, I, one that, second, one second. Oh, here we go. The ones that are reported. So this is my point is that you don't know what he experienced, <laughs> but these are, yes, these are the two one experiences that get brought up uh, all the time. The gleaming silver shields at the Battle of Tyre 
Right. And uh, right. what's the other one, Rob? The uh, oh, just being buzzed. I think the, his column. Yeah, of troops. His being buzzed. army. Yeah, was allegedly buzzed while they were um, going somewhere. And that that's the gleaming silver shields incident. Yeah, yes. and it was mostly of like Frank Edwards that was promoting this theory in his books and stuff like that. And he promoted a lot of things that were not true. There's a really strange cattle mutilation story from 1897 involving this guy named Alexander Hamilton. That is not true because the guy was basically in what they called a liar's club back then. They just made up stories and they told them to each other. This was around the time of the mystery airship sightings of the 1896, 1897 stuff. But in the chat, I was bringing it up because I was reading this article on Open Minds TV about how this was mostly populated by, you know, these uh, UFO researchers and stuff. And I boldface said that it's not true. And then Rich had the audacity <laughs> to say, man, you're just a bunch of 40 and buzzkills. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, d- d- no, that story was a pretty good article, too. There was an Italian author who yeah. was, I wouldn't say a gray barker because everyone says like, well, and that's the problem is that you see somebody who has admitted to some hoaxes or some uh, chicanery for fun. And then everybody points to that case. There you go. Everything's made up. It's always somebody Mm. like that. But in this case, it was an author who embellished quite a bit. And I believe that was the first instance in a book from uh, the late 1800s. Actually, I think it was in some obscure book. I don't remember exactly which it was. But but. somebody found that and then locked onto it. And then Scott and I have talked about this phenomenon quite a bit, is that somebody finds one story and it keeps getting past on and on and mm-hmm. on, and then it finds its own place and its own, it becomes its own story tulpa. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's another story that Frank Edwards published in one of his books about a guy who literally disappeared in front of his family in his front yard, and it's not true. It's just, <laughs> it's an interesting story, but it's not true. But how dare you point that out? Yeah, so you're the buzzkill in this situation. So I am, you, yeah, yeah, I'm the buzzkill. I just want to point out right now, in terms of all three of us, I've had more personal experiences than all of you put together. That's so. always the way it is. That's always how <laughs> that's that turns what I love out. about it, though, because that lends some credence to the stuff that is not true. When you say it's not true, I hope that somehow people, because we've come and done the episodes on certain stories, and we've been like, you know what? I can't figure this one out. On the other ones, when we think we can figure it out, we call it out. And that's the whole premise of what we're all doing here, except for Rich, who wants us to believe everything he says. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, look, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> but, you know, we figure, hey, look, look, you guys figured out Roanoke, Rob and I, f- I figured out alien abductions. Certain things do have conclusive answers that we all now come to accept. That's true. All right. Well, so what? where are we starting tonight? What are we going to, now that we're 41 minutes into this uh, session? <laughs> well, uh, let's see here. I, I think the something that happened yesterday that I guess we can talk about, and I'm not sure if anyone else here saw it. Well, Jeremy Corbell had a, I guess it was kind of a live stream of an update, which connects to just serendipitously, I had watched finally his documentary, Hunt for the Skinwalker. Pretty well done documentary. I found it very entertaining and uh, had a lot of the famous stories. And of course, uh, a a lot of the interviews with the main players, uh, Colonel Needham, I think, uh, who ran the operations there. Colm Kelleher, who was mm-hmm. one of the main scientists operating at the ranch. And so I'll appreciate a documentary that gets a lot of eyewitness interviews or at least interviews with the original people, because whether you believe it or not, those are the people that are involved in the story and are the main 
players and characters. So it was pretty well done. But he has uh, George Knapp, the investigative uh, paranormal investigator journalist out of Las Vegas, who a lot of you may may have known, and wrote the seminal Skinwalker book with Colm Kelleher. That is Hunt for the Skinwalker? No, I, I, Rob, what is the name of that? Uh... Yeah, Hunt for the Skinwalker. Okay. Yeah. yeah, in the documentary, he interviews George Knapp at his TV station where he works, usually. And he talks a lot about the organizations, the acronym organizations, ATIP, A-A-T-I-P, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, and... BAS, the Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies Program, and, and NIDS, and all the things that we've talked about. But this YouTube streaming yesterday was looked like, to me, the extended version of that interview. So it was interesting, and there was a few, not major revelations, but some interesting things that were kind of revealed to be known that weren't previously known. And, and I think overall, if, if people don't know, We've covered Skinwalker Ranch, of course, a couple of years ago now, and it was it's one of our most popular series. I don't think a lot of people make the connection between what came out uh, as a revelation about the ATIP program and the New York Times article and, and Commander David Fravor and, and the UFO sightings by the USS Nimitz and all these Navy encounters, that there is a connection seemingly now to Skinwalker Ranch. I don't think a lot of people will will have known that there is some kind of connection there. Yeah, uh, I don't think a lot of people, it's like when they published the 2017 article, Glowing Auras and Black Money, they had a slight allusion to it in the article, but they didn't really go into depth in it. And I remember, Scott, you were kind of upset about it because it didn't really, you know, shine any light. You're like, you know, was Harry Reid, you know, rolling up to Skinwalker Ranch and hanging out for a weekend and stuff like that. And what the interview basically comes out and says is that, uh, there's a different program. It's not ATIP. ATIP really looked at the military side of the, these UFO encounters that pilots and other kind of military personnel were having. And there is this unnamed other organization within the government that spearheaded the kind of civilian side of it. And one of the things that has been alluded to is that there was a call for contractors to. Uh, apply to be a part of a program. And Bigelow Aerospace, I believe, was the only one that applied for it. And he got it. So essentially, at a certain point, Bigelow Aerospace, it's believed that they were working with the Defense Intelligence Agency, and they were studying the ranch at a certain point, early in 2009. Now, there was a Really great, long article on popular mechanics. It came out in February. It's by a writer named Tim McMillan. And it goes into the nitty gritty of like everything that has come out since 2017 in that article and where we are now. And one of the things that it alludes to is a report. It's called the 10-month report, released in 2009. And it has all these revelations of things that Bigelow Aerospace wanted to do, were requesting, and uh, things that they were in the process of already studying. Uh, Some of those things included requesting Project Blue Book files that had not been released. Uh, Some of it was wanting to set up almost like a medical task force to study people who had had close encounters with UFOs that had negative health effects or some kind of health effects. And it alludes to 
Skinwalker Ranch being a possible site for like a laboratory for studying the phenomenon for technological uses. So that's come out recently. Like Skinwalker Ranch is in the news again. It's got a show on uh, the History Channel that uh, by the time this comes out is out already. Um, The current owner who had been keeping his name hidden for a long time has now come out. His name is Brandon Fugel, and he's a uh, Utah-based real estate mogul. He also uh, invests in tech and stuff like that. There's a great article from yeah. MJ Benias over at Vice Motherboard. He ended up going out there. He you know, got, was able to interview the scientist that is working there now because they're, they're still using it essentially as a scientific study area. And there is one guy, and uh, I think one of the most uh, startling things <laughs> that – he mentions in the article is that the ranch itself has a kind of mood. So like you can kind of sense what mood it is in when you're there. Yeah, that was interesting. He described it as uh, like a beehive that if yeah. you leave it alone, it mm-hmm. does its thing. You know, you might get uh, harassed by a few bees here and there, but mostly it sticks to itself. If you kick the beehive, of course you kick up the activity. And from the documentary by Jeremy Corbell, George Knapp claims it's especially digging. If you disturb anything on the ranch, but mm-hmm. especially digging in the ground will will usually act cause some activity to occur. They tried that uh, on the documentary, and not much happened, of course, on camera. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's an interesting thing, and and an interesting concept is that it doesn't really like disturbance and other things like uh, strangers coming onto the place. It's like a an organism of sorts mm-hmm. or a stray dog. It, if you're nice to it, you feed it. It gets used to you. There's some harmony there. If it's a stranger who upsets it, then you're going to get some barking and the activity kicks up. But yeah, it was, it was totally interesting. And also in the documentary, towards the end of it, you see a, a man whose face you don't see. He's shot from the neck down, wearing all black. And he's kind of billed as the mysterious new owner of Skinwalker. And his voice has been pitch shifted down. So it's disguised, and I believe that is Brandon Fugel. Yeah, that is. MJ Benias also did an interview with him. There's another post on uh, Vice Motherboard with him, and he, they've got a picture of him on the top. And, yeah, he's just wearing, like, leather jacket, you know, all that fun <laughs> stuff. I think the most startling thing that has uh, come from the Corbell documentary and, and uh, everything that's come out about the ranch is that they allude to the fact that when researchers went on the ranch – when they left, they often took paranormal activity home with them. And that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, and that's why we find the ranch, and I think they do too as as well. It's not just one thing. It is the kitchen sink of paranormal activity. So it's everything you can think of all in one place. And I think that's what makes it one of the most unique uh, or the unique place uh, known, certainly now, that is accessible mm-hmm. where you can study all different manner of phenomena and well, it includes UFOs and, and such, but like that, what you just described, like so many ghost hunters ex- describe that scenario as well, where uh, you go into a place, you disturb it. If you don't take the proper spiritual precautions, stuff can follow you home. Stuff can follow you home if you don't take precautions or if you do take <laughs> precautions too. I mean, certainly at the grocery store nowadays as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, are we still talking about Skinwalker Ranch or has, <laughs> have we now moved on? I, I'm really glad that people are studying Skinwalker Ranch and I, I find it fascinating that these, you know, big business guys and official government groups are moving in there. 
my prediction is that a what they hope to do is conclusively prove the existence of a particular phenomenon and explain it. My prediction is b that's not going to happen mm. because I don't think that's the way this works. I think right. what's going to happen is what is happening. A bunch of people are going to go there. They're not going to get any evidence, but people are going to have subjective experiences both there and afterwards that will change them individually. In other words, what happened to Scott at the Sally house? Mm. I honestly believe that all of this stuff boils down to individual investigation and change on an individual level, but not on an institutional level. I think all this stuff boils down to subjective experiences that really affect someone and maybe change the way they think and live. It kind of alludes to the idea that it's um, the experiencer, not the experience in, in those cases, yeah. because you're talking about like, if you're trying to encourage some widespread belief in all of the stuff, it's not going to happen. The only way that it could potentially happen is if it go, if this phenomenon goes from person to person, to person, to person, to person, and it exposes them to a certain kind of experience or something like that. It's why by and large photographic evidence of UFOs is not good evidence most of the time, because especially in the day and age that we live in now, things could be faked very easily, but you show evidence like that to somebody and they're just like, yeah, whatever. I mean, it, it was a little easier back in like say the forties and the fifties when, you know, cameras were a little different, but since everybody has one on them now, capturing footage of a UFO is like really not a helpful thing. It comes down to the experiencer and yeah. them being able to describe what they experienced and, and in a level of detail that, shows you the stuff that sticks out, especially if they're talking about what they're thinking or what they're feeling as they're going through this, because a lot of the times, and I mean, Rich, we've talked about this, is that they're not thinking like what you would normally think somebody would in that kind of situation. So, well, yeah, it's, yeah, it's twofold. I'm fascinated that people, when they see a UFO often, it's a, because we've heard the stories a million times and it feels so special and weird and scary mm -hmm. when we're thinking about it and reading about it and talking about it because the implications are so weird. But when people experience them, and I forget this all the time, they're experiencing it as something totally real. They're just like, mm -hmm. oh, look at that. There's this weird craft. Oh, well, that must be, well, it, it, like it doesn't feel supernatural to them. Right. At the beginning, at least, often. It's like, oh, well, now what's that? Now that's strange. And it's only as they begin to think about it and sort of go, well, why? Wait, it's not making any noise. Oh, that's weird. And then maybe they get a feeling like, oh, it doesn't want me to see it. And mm -hmm. then it starts to slowly cross a line into a more of a psychic experience. But the opposite seems to be true in certain ghost and Bigfoot sightings where there's a huge emotional feeling mm -hmm. instantly. With Bigfoot, there often people are like, I was more scared than I have ever been in my life. And it wasn't based on, oh, I think it's a bear that's going to kill me. It's like, there was something wrong about this. This is not a thing that is natural and normal. And it filled me with a level of terror. Same thing with Mothman sightings. I'm always in favor of studying the experiencer 
more than the phenomenon. The Skinwalker Ranch, we should be talking to the people and what they're experiencing and how they're experiencing it and what it's making them feel and who are these people who have the experiences. To me, that's the gold that is sitting right in front of us. And it's not a photograph or a videotape of a portal opening between dimensions. One of the things that's curious about this is when you talk about the experiencer and you talk about the nature of the experiences, and specifically when you go back to Skinwalker Ranch, which had a high trickster component to it, and you come back to that idea that the experiences are custom designed for the people who are trying to measure them. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole other thing that ties in with quantum physics, which I know people throw around and be like, oh, uh," when they can't explain something, they talk about quantum physics, which (laughs) I, you know, they, they, a lot of people in our genre do that. But the idea of how observing something changes it, that almost seems to come into play with regard to the things that happen at Skinwalker Ranch. Yeah. Rich, I think you've read, I don't know if you've read it. I haven't read it. I keep wanting to read it. And I wanted to have a show about it was that book, The Trickster and the Paranormal. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, which, yeah. I have read yeah. it. Man, it's it's fascinating, but it's tough. It gets into some weird areas. Like yeah. just weird philosophical, you know, things that that I'm not smart enough to really comprehend. <laughs> it's interesting to me how all of that stuff ties together. And I just think about the end of contact when she has the personal experience that nobody believes because it happens in the, you know, spoiler alert, by the way. Oh, it no, finally in, Scott spoils something. It's for, an for old everyone. movie. <laughs> and that's exactly what I tell him. He's like, you just spoil Citizen Kane for me. You spoil stuff that hasn't even been released yet. So anyway, whatever. She gets back. They don't think it happened because there wasn't enough time for what she experienced to happen or what it's just, and it's really just all about her. And then she's left trying to convince people. And that's the same kind of feeling that, I had to a certain extent with the Sally House, even though I had something on tape, you have to decide whether or not you believe we faked that audio or something like that, like, which I know we didn't, but there's no way for me to prove that we didn't. So then it's like, you know what, I'm all by myself mm. here, ultimately, or we are, because we were the, those of us who were in the house together and know that we didn't fake it when that happened. And then at Skinwalker Ranch, it's like these guys are out there with their notebooks and the cameras, and they set up the cameras, the cameras turn off, the thing happens, the camera turned back on. And so the only thing you get to say is, this definitely happened at this point, but none of the gear worked during that millisecond. And so we have nothing to say, but I personally know that that's how it went down. And so that one person or the person who was observing it is the only one that gets to have the experience. And then coming back around to this whole beehive thing or whatever, that it's an organism, man, that's... I had forgotten about it. Thanks for bringing it all back. That, <laughs> yeah, that well, place wigs me out. Of course. <laughs> yeah, well, they, that is uh, that is well talked about in the yeah. uh, documentary, the Corbell documentary as well. But I think one thing that's being brought up here that I think is is fascinating as far as how you process and register that personal experience is that it's the nature of what you're looking at. I will say it this way. We've said this all the time, and, and that's the big thing that we get thrown at us. It's like, look, there's no proof for any of this. And I always say, it's like, well, it depends on what you consider proof. There's always been really great Mm -hmm. examples of ghost photos. Unless it's somebody you know who took it, you're going to probably doubt, like, well, there you go. They're just trying to get attention. And there's always been tons of great UFO shots and footage and and all kinds of uh, recordings. And I think it's, it depends on what you're looking at. And I'll explain it this way. If you look up in the sky and you see something that's, uh, it's diamond shaped. It's multicolored. It looks like the ice cream cone and <laughs> close encounters of the third kind. It's blinking all these different kind of lights and it zigzags up and down and then takes off at a 90 degree angle. It's like, well, that's nothing that, you know, is commercially known in aviation. That's impossible. We don't have that kind of technology. And that's like, well, that's really weird. 
that's different than seeing a creature that looks like a kangaroo with a human face on it. And that's one of my favorite descriptions because I've had close friends describe to me things that they've seen that's so weird. Uh, Scott has a friend that uh, uh, we've been trying to work around this, uh, getting this on the show as a description, as an anecdote, the goblin in the garden where somebody sees a guy's coming on. No, probably not at this point, but, but seeing something, it's like, that's not a possum. That's not a kid playing a prank in a Halloween costume. You're seeing something that looks so real that strikes you so much differently when you talk about the personal experience that you're having uh, with something uh, that's an anomaly. Okay. That's different than seeing lights in the sky. That's like with myself uh, at Waverly seeing what looked like a guy cross in front of one of our team members there, James A. Willis. And it looks so much like a regular person. It it didn't strike me at all. It's just like, I don't even register it. And then it wasn't until I thought later, Mm. it's like, well, where did the guy go? He walked into an empty room, which is totally open and no one ever saw him again. And we looked at the room and he was gone. So, but it didn't really register because he looks so normal. I think one of the things that I kind of wish investigators of this kind of phenomenon would ask the witnesses is what they think UFOs look like before this incident happened. Like go back before this, because is this phenomenon able to like get into your head and realize what's in there and try to form itself around that? That's one of the most interesting things because it seems like this phenomenon, whatever it is, is better at studying us than we are at studying it. It's just a lot more efficient in that way. I think that's a good point, Rob, because in some instances, maybe a lot of them, it does seem like they are still studying us. And from a lot of UFO encounter reports, it's like they don't quite get it yet. Mm -hmm. They're still baffled by us. They're still interested. They're still checking us out. And we may be so weirdly foreign to them that People are still having encounters and they're still trying to figure us out. But the idea is that they're still studying us and we are trying to as well, but we, our vantage point is so much lower. They're on Rich's mm-hmm. Mothman scaffolding and he can see up the road 10 miles and we're on, we're stuck on the sidewalk and we're just looking up wondering what's happening. Oh, Rich, God, that reminds me. I wanted to ask you something that's messing with my noodle here real quick, yeah. but you had held up a little sign that said, let's take a break. Yeah. And it was backwards. So. Yeah, I had to, I had to write it backwards so that it would read <laughs> on camera. So I wrote no, that backwards. You don't because oh, you mean are you guys seeing this backwards? Does yes. This backwards? <laughs> oh, okay. I just I'm glad because oh. I, I thought there was a glitch in the matrix because I can clearly <laughs> read the Mothman prophecies poster behind you. It's perfectly written, and so oh. I was going to say, how can that be written normal? And then <laughs> you hold second. up a post-it the, that you wrote, and it's backwards. But to that's me, that's backwards. Oh, wait a second. There's a there's actually a thing I can do here that will do that you will undo your own mirror. camera. Or yeah, something. No, hang on, hang on mirror my video hold on boom now i'm seeing myself the way you guys see me yeah i was concerned that you had written something forwards and somehow when you held it up it became backwards because (laughs) i can read clearly the words behind you in the right way so that was bothering me that's a cool trick (laughs) wait so wait how does this look if i hold Uh, this up i don't i don't want this what does it it look like Red rum. Yeah. That's okay. fine. All right. All right. Shall All right, we? Break. Yes, let's break. I'm Becky Scott, and when I'm not looking out for the Chicago Mothman, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. 
Okay, so we got a couple more stories here. Mine's dumb, so we're cutting it. We're just going to go with the three of you have stories. I think, Forrest, you should tell yours first. But wait, what was your story about, Scott? You know what I wanted to talk about, and I feel like I brought him up on the show before, was Clement Vallandigham from Vallandigham, who was the defender who was trying to prove something in court about how a gun couldn't have gone off and and it went off in his pocket or something and it killed him. In court. I just love that story. I, you know, so if you, I just wanted to talk about how asinine that was. If you want to look him up, it's Clement Vallandigham, V-A-L-L-A-N-D-I-G-H-A-M here. I'll read the little just quickly. I'm going to officially change my name to that. Vallandigham. Vallandigham died. This is from Wikipedia. All credit to Wikipedia, whoever, whatever anonymous person wrote this. Vallandigham died in 1871 in Lebanon, Ohio, at the age of 50 after accidentally shooting himself in the abdomen with a pistol. He was representing a defendant, Thomas McGeehan, in a murder case for killing a man in a barroom brawl in Hamilton, Ohio. Vallandigham attempted to prove the victim, Tom Myers, had in fact accidentally shot himself while drawing his pistol from a pocket while rising from a kneeling position. As Vallandigham conferred with fellow defense attorneys in his hotel room at the Lebanon House, later the Golden Lamb Inn, he showed them how he would demonstrate this to the jury. Selecting a pistol he believed to be unloaded, he put it in his pocket and enacted the events as they might have happened, snagging the loaded gun on his clothing and unintentionally causing it to discharge into his belly. Although he was fatally wounded, Vallandigham's demonstration proved his point, and the defendant, Thomas McGeehan, was acquitted and released from custody only to be shot to death four years later in his saloon. Oh, so. right. Well, the guy got four years. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's a good attorney. He shot himself to prove the point, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Didn't that come up in our... Oh, the Henry Plummer? Yeah, series? the Sher- Sheriff Henry Plummer. I'm, I would have liked to have had, had it happen in court myself. Yeah. Because you're... Yeah. Missing out I, in my audience. memory, it had. See, and that's yeah. how legends become legends. Because I, I even told it, even when I let it in just now, I told it wrong. But then when I read it, I told the right <laughs> version. That's the difference with us. We always try to find the right version. All of us, I think, when it comes to telling these stories. Speaking of which, so Forrest, what is your story? You've alluded to this in the past couple episodes, but I don't think you told it on the air yet. I thought it was a, a good time maybe now to, since we're all coming to the table. And it's not, as far as like, it, it's not the big, uh, the big finale type of story, but it is something that happened to me personally that usually never happens. This wasn't that long ago either, right? Yeah, this would have been in February. First part of it, I could actually find, uh, because I took a few photos wondering if it would happen again. Here's the setup on this. And and again, I think my reaction was, uh, I didn't know what to think of it at the time. So at the end of October, a good friend of mine had passed away. And I had known him and worked with him since uh, 1993, 92. And uh, a real character, a real sweetheart of a guy uh, named Paul. And about the time that I knew him or met him, probably a little bit before that, he found out that he had uh, multiple sclerosis. And so over those years, he'd had MS and he'd always done pretty well. He was pretty mobile up until the last few years. But his mind was always sharp uh, for the most part. I mean, he was he was a real character, but a, a, an artist, a, a creative director, fine art painter. He was, uh, yeah, he was just an all-around artist. So we had a memorial for him showcasing all of his art, and that happened in the first part of November. So that had occurred, and then, of course, the holidays happened, and in February, it was always a circle of friends. So his wife... And uh, another friend of his who was also a music composer and, and uh, his wife, we'd all kind of worked together 
and had all been friends. And that and that's the setup. So I've known them quite a long time. So we had Paul's wife there, his, his widow. We had another friend of Paul's and, and ours, who's a music composer, and his wife. And we were just having a dinner, a nice dinner at their house. They'd prepared a lovely meal. Uh, of course, after dinner, David had got out a bottle of uh, really nice Suntory Hibiki whiskey, Japanese whiskey, and he set it on the table. And so we we all had a small glass. And as they're clearing up the dishes, and I was sitting at the table with Paul's wife, and we were all talking. So those two are uh, who own the house. They're in the kitchen, kind of cleaning up and and getting ready for us all to kind of sit down and and have a little after dinner, uh, a few snacks, and uh, enjoy a finger or two of uh, good whiskey. And uh, I'd already poured myself one. And as we we're talking, the topic came up about the memorial and like how it was so fun. It, it brought all of our uh, working cohorts and friends together after probably, you know, people hadn't worked or seen each other for maybe 15, 20 years. And, and we all came back and this is what this would all be in the corporate media arena. So uh, creative directors and artists and, and videographers and, and, and writers and all these people who would come together to work in this, uh, uh, a lot of it having to do with the automotive industry and, and a lot of it was uh, technical. So we would produce uh, large stage events and videos, and this would be production back in the mid-90s to the mid-2000s. And, and we we're just talking about the challenges, like, man, you know, we we didn't have all the stuff that we have now today. Like, the, the things that we're doing the show with right now were so far off that we weren't sure. I, but we could get by with the technical things that we did have, the tools that we did have. But it was a lot more mechanical, more hands-on, and uh, and I was just kind of uh, reminiscing, I wish you would say, we were talking about Paul and you know, how he would like to, uh, uh, you know, added a real creative eye to things and, and he added his own style and a uh, very artistic guy. And, and I work with him in the edit bay quite a bit and just like was, you know, kind of fond memories. Like, man, we used to have to edit on tape and it was, it was linear. If you made a change at the beginning, you have to change everything out, everything that follows after that. And, you know, but my statement was like, man, I, I just, I miss working with Paul and it was, uh, no matter what challenges we had, it always came out looking really good for 19 95 technology. We got it done. And, and you can look at the tapes today and it still looks great. And and so I, I was in that reminiscing moment. And at that moment, the cork, which had been pushed down into the bottle of whiskey, pops out and falls onto the table. And Paul's wife and I looked at it. And and uh, the first thing she said was like, man, Paul's here and, and he wants a drink. <laughs> he wants to join in. And and I just sat there kind of like a little bit dumbfounded and just like trying to remember like, okay, I, our host, David, he'd poured whiskeys for us all. I, I'd finished that. I poured myself another one and I, I was the one who put the cork back in. And if you can look up the bottle, it's kind of a nice bottle, heavy glass top with a, with a cork stopper on the bottom of that. What's the type, uh, what type of whiskey? I know it's Suntory, but which? Hibiki, H-I-B-I-K-I. They have several, uh, they're all pretty good. That was the the particular brand on this one. And so if you look it up, you can see like it's got a heavy glass top. And I was the one who put the cork back in after I finished. But I was probably going to have another one after that, after we all kind of sat down. So I didn't put the cork in all the way, but I put it in far enough, I would say, to to keep it closed. Like if it fell over, I'd want, of course, the cork to stay in. And so at that moment, I was like, wait a second, what, how far did I put the, the top back in? It was at least a third to a half of the way down. Like you'd have to hold the bottle down to pull the cork out. And my reason for explaining that is that I just thought like, how did that happen? 
I can understand if you had the liquor in the fridge or in the freezer and you brought it out, it it warmed up to room temperature and the contents, of course, expanded and uh, that caused pressure and it pushed the cork out. That's never happened to me, but I could understand how that would happen. Or if uh, you had taken the bottle from room temperature outside in the sun and the sun's heating it up, the bottle had been always room temperature. There was no change to it. And it again, it had that context and that... Um, I might not have thought much about it if it happened uh, at, on another day and we weren't talking about Paul. But it happened to be at the moment like, man, I wish Paul was, you know, you know, was around and we were still working together and, and, and wouldn't that be fun? And at that moment, that's when it happens. To me, that's the context that gives it meaning or more meaning as if it happened in some other context or some other time. So the top falls out. Uh, his wife immediately just feels like, oh, yeah, he's here he's here with us. Because uh, again, that would be a dinner that he would have been in, in attendance with as well. Later that evening, uh, we had gathered in uh, David's home studio to watch a few shows that he had uh, recorded. And we were again talking about Paul. And I think maybe uh, his wife was talking about like, D you all saw that, right? And then at that moment, the lights flicker, the main light that's in the uh, at the top of the ceiling there but not throughout the house. So it wasn't a power fluctuation and it wasn't a power fluctuation in that room, even though there's quite a bit of uh, music gear and recording gear turned on and, and TVs, like just that light flickered a little bit. And, uh, and she goes like, there you go. I get, I didn't really say much. And then towards the end of the evening and we're talking uh, with David's wife and she's, um, we're all kind of standing at the door and she's seeing us out. We again talked about that incident and Paul's wife was like, wow, that was, it kind of gives me a good feeling. Like he's here. Like he's kind of, uh, you know, it, it's at a dinner that he would have liked to have been at. Uh, he would have certainly liked to have had a, a glass of whiskey poured for, poured for him. And it just like, uh, that was so kind of unusual and, and strange. And we were just kind of acknowledging that. And at that moment, the light in the living room flickers a little bit, but no other lights in the house, just that one that we were nearest. So this is a second light flickering. This is a second. It, yeah, I think it, it probably yeah. flickered a couple of times in the studio when we were talking. Yeah. Uh, and then just that one time. And again, I didn't say anything because I also don't like to freak out hosts uh, in their house if they don't buy into this stuff. Because that's if you don't believe it or you, or you do and you it, it freaks you out. I don't like to mention it like, oh, there you go. You got a ghost in your house. Good luck with that. Good night. It was just something where Paul's wife had said, well, there you go. It, it just happened again, like uh, in kind of a, a way of saying like, uh, well, if you didn't believe the first two times, there it is. He were saying goodbye. So that happened. Yeah. It's like one of the few things where I guess we were all looking for evidence or that personal experience. Like I didn't feel anything. It wasn't, uh, it was nice memories to think about uh, your friend who had passed away and something strange did happen, but it was pretty neutral for me in that feeling of like, I'm just thinking like, I guess the cork did fall out. That's unusual that, that I couldn't think of any way that that would happen uh, naturally with physics on its own. And it had a context to it. So, so there you go. It's a mild experience to me. And again, not much has ever happened to me, but like, well, there you go. And, and as far as ex uh, experience and proof, one of the main things that gets people's attention is a poltergeist type activity where something moves. We're always looking at that. Like, could you make the R the REM pod go off for us, please? Can you send us an EVP? Can you turn on the child's toy? Because those electronic things are less tangible to us. But when something moves that should not, it wasn't blown by the wind or didn't fall, you know, didn't slide off a table, but something moves on its own, that gets your attention. And that's my story.
<laughs> and that's the rest of the story. I think it's a, an interesting story. I mean, even if you could chalk up the electrical stuff, I mean, you could chalk well, that's it up what to I'm some, saying. Is something that, is, that's on the same circuit yeah. or something like that. But the court coming out, all right, so in terms of physics, which you mentioned, that maybe with a temperature change or a long period of time or something, or if you had only just barely gotten it in there. If it was carbonated, you know what I'm saying? If there's if there's a yeah. gaseous pressure <laughs> building up inside the bottle from it being disturbed, but, you know, whiskey's pretty inert. So it's just sitting in the bottle. There's no carbonation. Uh, we had just opened it. It's not like uh, it's 200 years old and we just cracked the seal and the pressure inside is working its way out. It was kind of unexplainable, but it's very mild. You know what I'm saying? It's just like uh, it didn't spray up into a fountain. Uh, it, the bottle didn't twirl around. The top just kind of fell out onto the table. And, uh, well, maybe this is also significant. It fell out of the table and then scooted about another half foot to get onto the floor. So it was a little bit more dramatic. There's a detail you left no, out. No, because here's, yeah, a, here's the thing. kind of a big detail. Uh, no, no. <laughs> it, here's what I'm saying as far as like how physics work and works and what we're expecting to see. It didn't slide off the table. It fell out of the bottle. It bounced a couple of times. And then it, it kind of rolled off the table, or, or I didn't even notice it. It kind of made its way off the table. Like I said, if it, it fell, uh, and these are all the cues of how physics works. fishing strings? See, that's how I know it, it wouldn't. Yeah, if we were at a, at the, <laughs> come to the ghost roadside attraction and that happens, or like yeah. I was trying to, uh, to prank Scott when we were at the Monte Vista Hotel by tying fishing uh, line to a rocking chair, which I, yeah. man, I wish I would have done if I had the, the time. <laughs> uh, then, then you can kind of expect that. It's like, we're just at a dinner here. Nobody did anything. And well, look, the, the, the incident had meaning because you were talking about someone yes. who had passed on. And then twice later in the evening, when you were talking about that person, something happened that got your attention. That's not common. So the, the meaning of it's pretty clear, but it is funny. It reminds me, Scott, have you ever told the story of what happened in the steakhouse bathroom? Yes, he has. Yes, I I told that during our hundredth episode, Archipelusa series. I told. Oh, him okay, that. great, great. Yes, yeah. yeah, I love that one. I love it especially because I've been to that steakhouse. Yeah, and you I've went been there, to that right? Bathroom. Yeah, like went right there. Like that week, I went there, and it really freaked me out. I kind of waited for something to happen, but then nothing happened. That was a weird event, and yeah, for those of you that want to hear that story, we did uh, a special for the hundredth episode. And uh, Rob, weren't you on it? I can't remember. Yeah, I was yeah. there. Yeah. I, we called it Archipelusa. And I think it wound up being two episodes. I can't remember which one I told that story in, but yeah. Well, it's that the was perfect a strange... time to go back, yeah, and listen yeah. to the episodes you've missed. So if you haven't heard Arkapalooza, definitely, because there's a ton of great stories. I'm Holly, and my husband William and I listen to Astonishing Legends every weekend for date night. The couple that listens to Ale together stays together. Let's, Let's get, get back, back to, to the, the show. show. Well, so Rich, you had a story too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to hear it? Yeah, I mean, we just say you have a story too, Rob. Who wants to go next? I'll leave it up to you guys. Uh, Rich, you, you go ahead. Uh, mine's, uh, I think mine's a good uh, one to end on. Uh, okay, here, good. So. Okay. All right, all right. Well, this is a story that was told to me when, this is probably like 1979, I think I was 13. So, it, I mean, we're going back decades. I was going up to spend the weekend at uh, the cabin of some family friends. And I was with my family, obviously. And so this is up in the Crestline area, which is near Lake Arrowhead, right outside of Los Angeles. So as we're heading up, my 
uh, sort of, you know, friend aunt says, oh, we're, there are some people up uh, who are neighbors of ours, and they used to live in a house that had a ghost. And maybe you can ask them about it. So later that evening, once we were all up there and it was after dinner, you know, I'm a little bit nervous because I'm still a kid and I'm talking to people who are basically strangers and they're grownups, but I really wanted to know. So I said, hey, I hear that you guys had a ghost in your house. And this is a family, I won't give their name, but there was a, a father and a mother and two kids that were about my age. And I will say right away, the dad sort of goes, I'll let her tell it. And he gets up and moves off to another part of the room and starts talking to other people, which in my mind was sort of him saying, "Mm, they had an experience. I did not have an experience, which I later then came to find is common in these haunted house stories. Certain members of the family are like, oh, this happened. And others just, nope, I was there. I lived through it. Nothing happened. Right. Anyway, the mom started telling the story. And this is the story she told. And it stuck with me forever, and I've told it a bunch of times to my friends, but it just sticks with me because to me it's very human and very scary and very funny and sad, and it's just kind of got everything. So this house is purchased in California. It's a new house, recent construction. This is not the story of an old, creaky Victorian house. The family buys the house, and the dad is away on business. So the mom and the two kids occupy the house and they, it's their first day. They move in, they've got some stuff there and now it's time to go to bed. They all go to bed and the mom suddenly wakes up and she has the overwhelming feeling that something, someone is in the house, feeling of a presence. And she's never done this before in her life. She sits up in bed. She's staring and the door begins to open. And two dark figures run into the room and jump on the bed. It's her kids. It takes her a minute to process this and she's terrified. And she says, what's going on? What are you guys doing in here? And they're like, we're really scared. We both just woke up. We think there's someone in the house. So she's like, okay, we're all going to stay right here tonight. And the kids stayed in bed with her that night. And the next morning they wake up and now in daylight, things aren't quite as scary. A couple days later, dad comes home, starts staying there. And in these first few weeks, as they live in the house, the mom and the two kids begin to notice something. Things will go missing and then they'll reappear but they'll reappear in a different place in the house. Something will disappear from one of the kids' desks and then show up in the middle of the floor. Hours later, sometimes days later, the mom and the two kids have these experiences. The dad has no experience whatsoever. But they begin among the three of them to feel that maybe there's a ghost in the house. One night, the four of them are out, I think seeing a movie, something like that. And they all come home. The mom goes into the kitchen and she's washing her hands at the kitchen sink. It's late at night. She looks up. There's a window above the sink. And she just happens to glance up just in time to see a woman in a very, very old-fashioned green dress walk past the window outside. And she is terrified but also intrigued because Maybe this is the ghost. So she goes upstairs to tell the kids. And as she's going upstairs, the kids are running downstairs. 
And the mom says, what's going on? And they're like, we saw the ghost. She doesn't say anything. What did you see? And the boy says, I opened my closet. There was a lady there in a green dress. Okay, so now they, they think there's really something going on. Now it's Christmas time. They have a Christmas party for all of their new neighbors and for a lot of the dad's coworkers. Big Christmas party. And as the mom is moving through the party, she overhears a conversation where one person is talking to another about how this other woman at the party is a psychic and sometimes can pick up on things and is able to communicate with the dead. And so the mom pulls her aside and says, hey, this is kind of crazy. I heard what you were saying. I actually think there's a ghost in this house. And I'm wondering if you know anything about that or or could uh, tell me anything about that. And this other woman says, well, I didn't sense anything, but if you guys want, you know, let's go upstairs. We'll do an impromptu seance. So during the Christmas party, the mom, this other woman, the psychic woman, the other friend who that woman was talking to, but neither of the two kids go upstairs into an unoccupied room just so this other psychic woman can maybe plug into something. They do an impromptu seance. And what this woman gets is there is a woman here and her name is Maggie. And she lived in the area somewhere around here, but it was at least 100 years ago, maybe more. So if this story was being told to me in 1979, we're going back to 1879, maybe the 1860s in California. Now they have a name, Maggie. And at that point, they start addressing this ghost in their house as Maggie. And once they do, their communication is facilitated. In other words, the kids will be upstairs in their room doing homework and the lights will go out and they'll go, Maggie, would you please turn the lights on? And then the lights go back on. Doors will open and close late at night when they're trying to sleep. Maggie, would you please stop? It stops. Items go missing. Maggie, I need that back. And then sooner or later, the item comes back. This communication becomes very uh, common and very comfortable. No one is afraid. They have some family relatives come over. Another family stays with them for Easter, and they don't mention anything about the ghost because why would you? Why scare people? But it's Sunday morning now, and they're all getting ready to go to church, and one of their cousins can't find his shoes. Now, everyone in the family, there's got to be 10 people in the house now, start looking for this kid's shoes. Nobody can find the shoes. So mom slips away into the laundry room. She goes into the laundry room because you can contact Maggie more clearly if you stand near an appliance that uses water. I don't know how they figured this out, but they did. So she sneaks off into the laundry room, finds herself standing near the washing machine and saying, Maggie, we're late for church. We really got to get these shoes back. If there's anything you can do, we would really appreciate it. She steps out of the laundry room and she hears some member of the other family that's come to visit say, oh my God. They all walk into the dining room, which is in the middle of the house, a room everyone has walked through dozens of times looking for these shoes, and they all see the same thing at the same time. The shoes are in the middle of the dining room table, pointed toe to toe. Well, this goes on for months. Now it's fall. 
and the family goes on a vacation. They go to Hawaii and they have the girl down the street house it for them. Again, they don't say anything about what's been going on in their house because maybe it would be tough to get a house sitter. But the teenage girl from down the street comes over and is staying at the house. Two days into their vacation, the young woman calls them up and says, I'm not going to house sit for you anymore. And they say, why not? And she says, something is happening upstairs. I've been here late at night. I hear doors slamming. Lights are going on and off. I'm really, really scared. I don't know what's happening. I don't want to go back to your house. I'm so sorry. They all look at each other and they're like, oh, listen, you know what? It's okay. That's just our ghost, Maggie. And if you just talk to her, just go back and talk to her and just go, Maggie, would you please stop doing that? Everything will stop. And the girl from down the street says, I'm not going to do that. I'm terrified. And the fact that you guys know about this thing and what it is freaks me out. And I'm not going back. The family, the mom, the two kids start to get really worried. They're like, okay, this is really bad. Uh, They're gone for a week. When they come back to the house, they walk in and each one of them immediately knows that Maggie is gone. The house feels different. They call out to her for a few weeks, nothing, no lights, no doors, no missing objects returned, and nothing ever happened again. That's it? That's the end of the story. (laughs) Wow. Whatever the house sitter encountered, that was the... By the time they got back, Maggie had left. So now, the real question here would be, was the, did the house sitter encounter Maggie or something else that chased Maggie off? Well, the family telling me the story, this had all happened about a year in the past. And they all understood to them instantly what had happened. They had left. Maggie had gotten used to their presence Someone else started occupying the house. Maggie didn't know who that person was or why they were there. And something about the fact that they left, because they had never left the house for that period of time before. They'd never gone on any trips, and now they were gone for a week. And they Mm. all felt that somehow Maggie had been left behind, felt abandoned, and that marked the end of the experience. Oh, wow. Now, All right, so how did you hear this story again? It was told to me around a fireplace in the uh, midsummer of 1979. When you were young, by the people that experienced it? Friends of friends who had experienced it. And they told the story very straightforward. There was no embellishment. Uh, It was just, well, here's some stuff that happened. It's almost like someone telling you about the trip they took to Disneyland. They just reported back what had happened. And they were very open about the fact that, oh, dad doesn't believe any of this. Nothing ever happened to him. But it was all very real to the other people living in the house. Was this in your neck of the woods? I believe this was more in Central California. I live in Southern California. So again, I was 13. But it was the first time I'd ever heard directly from someone who had ever had any experience. And what stayed with me was how how sad the ending of the story was. Yeah. How not scared they were after that first night and how quickly it became a part of their life that three people in the house understood, assimilated, and lived with in a very easy way. And the fourth person never believed any of it, never had any experiences at all. Now it was really hard for me to understand. I'm like, wait a second, if all this stuff was going on and someone else was living in the house, they must have experienced it too. But they didn't, which sort of goes back to that subjective experience thing I was talking about, which is it's either happening or it's not. 
And that's what we always think. It's happening or it's not. But you can be in the same house and for you it's happening and for somebody else it's not. There is a connection also, I, I believe, with occupants, well, within a family. That was uh, evidenced in uh, the Kakowski Intruder episode way back when. Oh, I love Liz, that story. Yeah, Liz Kakowski and her brother Craig had experienced the pretty much the same exact thing years apart in two different bedrooms of theirs. Their younger sister, who lived at the end of the hall, nothing. Nothing at all. And and it wasn't just the recurring dream that they would both, uh, Liz and her brother Craig, would, would continue to have. Other minor things that would happen in the house that they they would notice. Yeah, the younger sister, like, no, never did. And then, you know, of course, the other interesting story thing is that Liz and Craig themselves never knew that each other were having the same exact recurring dream until years later. And then I'd never heard it. a story like that. That is amazing. But that, to me, is as close to proof as you're ever going to get of anything. Yeah. People in a, in a family, and I don't know if it has to do with uh, your your willingness to believe or your belief system or is something physical or spiritual about the person. You could be in a tight group and one person just doesn't have it. And, and uh, I've heard that throughout families as well with odd things happening. And a good friend of mine who was a fraternal twin in a family of five, this person had a fraternal twin, uh, but was actually closer to an older sibling who was also a fraternal twin, who was not as close with their fraternal twin. These two siblings, a uh, you know, in an age group apart, uh, one younger, one older, would have all kinds of strange experiences communally between the two of them. We, there was a strange connection, which you would normally think like, well, that's a twin thing, or that seems more likely between twins, and and maybe it's not spiritual or paranormal. It's just a, a biological thing that they share. But oddly, yeah, she this person was closer with their uh, with their older sibling, and uh, they both saw their father appear in their living rooms moments before he actually passed away, or or a significant amount of time before he passed away, which we now know, or Scott and I at least, uh, that it's a crisis apparition yeah of sorts but what was interesting is that they both then called each other up like you're not going to believe this and the other one says dad just appeared in the living room like, yes so you can be kind of a server you can be quantum you can appear in, in two different places at the same time apparently i've mentioned this on the show before but i had a friend in college and we're not related at all we met in college grew up different places different environments you know he grew up in the country in the mountains of north carolina and you know, when I was young, I lived in Denver and then in North Carolina and a different part of the state. But he and I, we were only friends a few years because, you know, geographically we went our separate ways and, and we're still friends now, but it's like that thing where we talk once or twice a year on Facebook. But we used to finish each other's sentences. It would be like almost like a party trick. People would hang around us to listen to us talk. And I was like, hey, this is what it would be like if I had a twin or something. And we were really good friends. And uh, now that I'm back in North Carolina, I've actually been thinking of reconnecting with him. But it's, we used to both marvel at it. And I haven't in my whole life, all the people, all the friends I've had, at, you know, family, people blood related and not, there's never been that thing. And there was like a weird connection with him that I could never put my finger on. And I always wondered about that. When's the last time you connected with this person? You know, just to say something on a picture on Facebook or something, maybe a few months ago. I don't think he even knows I've moved back to North Carolina, actually. He lives in Raleigh, and I'm in Greensboro, and up just a little over an hour away. He's a scientist at, in Research Triangle Park. So, mm. but mm. it's strange. We used to talk about it a lot, and a lot of things were different. Like, you know, we have different views on things. We weren't the same person by any stretch, but we we weirdly, conversationally, just somehow, like, 
our dialogue between each other flowed as if it was coming from one person. It was really bizarre. Rob, if you're listening, hello. Uh, <laughs> Rob took a nap. That's a different uh, Rob, this, but I, you know, yeah. same difference. Yeah. Speaking oh, of which, yes. Rob, let's hear your story. Let's close the show out and yeah. uh, with, yeah. with your so, story. Uh, my story is not personal to me. I've told my stories a million times. So uh, if if you want to know them, they're out on my uh, on the internet. I did an episode of my podcast. It's uh, called My Personal Experiences. Yeah, I listened. It was uh, fascinating. And again, you'll hear the. Uh, the kangaroo man, which uh, yeah. chills oh. me to the bone. Uh, that, yeah, yeah, I don't like that one. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's our strange skies, yes. folks. For those of you listening that ha- uh, don't know who Rob Christopherson is, and no, yeah. he's not related. No, no, not related. <laughs> I'm not even going to try to get on Ancestry to find out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. Well, you, you know, there's an E and an O. There's a different. Yeah. You guys spell it different, I think. So. Exactly, yeah. just one letter off. But uh, uh, what I'm bringing to the table is um, a couple of UFO stories, and they're interesting for. The fact that they involved two motorists in two different towns in Ohio that ended up one hit a UFO and the other hit an alien in the same year. Everything comes back to Ohio. I just want to quickly interrupt. It's far and away the weirdest state in the the country. I'm just going to say that right now. Yeah, It's very strange. But uh, this goes back to 1967, which was a huge UFO flap year. I mean, you guys have covered uh, the Mothman, Point Pleasant and stuff, but... uh, all the extra stuff that was happening at that time is usually drowned out by what was happening in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and the Ohio Valley. Technically, this was like the U.S.'s third straight uh, flap year. There are a number of infamous cases from this time. Forrest, you've mentioned the Malmstrom Air Force Base incident, mm-hmm. which happened in March 1967, in which a UFO took out the uh, nuclear arsenal offline there. Right. Um, there's the Shag Harbor incident, which happened in October, and... Before that, there was the Falcon Lake incident in Manitoba, which yeah. involved... The exhaust burns, right? Yes. Yes. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and Shag Harbor's Nova Scotia for people that... Yep. Yeah. This is also the year that Ohio residents were hitting UFOs and aliens with their cars. <laughs> well, would you think they'd be able to, to avoid being a, a, a yeah. higher uh, existing uh, intelligence? You'd think they would have a, a better backup cameras and better... Uh, a better sense about themselves. Yeah, you know, maybe now, but uh, 1967, not not so much. The first incident goes back to March 28th of that year. It's around 2.20 a.m. And 20-year-old David Morris was driving home from work. And while cresting a hill in Monroe Falls, he caught sight of an orange, a, a quote, an orange-red glowing cone-shaped object 25 feet high and 12 feet wide hovering several feet above a field to his left. When he looked back to the road, he could see four or five short beings that were they were stocky with abnormally large heads, but he couldn't tell if they were wearing helmets or not. He couldn't really make out a whole lot of details, but they were short. They were between three and a half and four feet tall. And they also seemed to be glowing themselves, this strange orange color. And... The small figures were running very quickly back and forth across the road with much more speed and agility that Morris could. And they seemed to be moving with purpose from a drainage ditch on the north side of the road to the south side and back again. The figures gave no notice of the motorist. They didn't pay attention to him at all, and he tried to slam on his brakes. But unfortunately, he hit one of the beings with his car. It produced a loud thump, 
and he claimed to see an arm fly up in the air. And it looked like this person was wearing some kind of mittens because he couldn't see his hand. And uh, whatever he had hit, it produced a strong metallic odor for some reason. Ooh. He went forward about eight to ten feet. He slammed on his brakes and he looked back and he could see the other beings were now gathering around the injured one. And Morris became very frightened because he came to the realization that what he had hit was non-human. And he was pretty sure that they were going to kill him. So the report states that he, quote, burned rubber and drove away as quickly as possible from the area. And Morris just sat in his house. He was shaken for like a few hours until he finally calmed himself down, climbed the stairs to his bedroom and went to sleep. Upon later examination, he found a few bumps and scratches on the front of his bumper. The case was reported to the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, and researchers were able to find, they weren't able to find evidence of the landed craft, but they stated that they could see uh, Morris's skid marks on the road. There were a number of strange cases in 1967 involving UFOs, aliens, and cars. In another case in Reary, Idaho, a UFO stopped a car in the middle of a rural road, and an alien being came out. It floated out of the craft and actually came over to the car, opened the door, pushed the two guys in the front seat over, got behind the wheel, and drove this thing into a field. Wow. So, so they got yeah. carjacked That's and taken right. off. Yeah, and... Uh, this encounter was brief, but the two witnesses, Guy Tossi and Will Begay, they were traumatized for life after that. But back to... Sure to drive the car. Wait, what happened after they got into the field? One of the guys, because it came to a stop, the car came to a stop, one of the guys jumped out of the vehicle and ran to this nearby farmhouse. The other one cowered in the passenger seat, looking at the alien being the alien beings trying to talk to him but he can't understand what he's saying because it's in these like weird chirping sounds and stuff oh, and the man. alien being see this gets animated <laughs> <laughs> it would be amazing <laughs> to see an animation of this the alien being gets out he meets up with another alien being that was in the vehicle in the craft they both float back to the craft and it takes off so he really just needed a ride from the road back to his original ride yeah, it seems like that, yeah. you know. Yeah. But well, yeah. uh, the, the interesting thing is <laughs> yeah. that two hours after this encounter, a few miles from where it took place, there was another guy driving a truck who was stopped in the middle of the road by a UFO, and an alien being got out and tried to get into his vehicle. Oh. Well, it's fun. They, it, <laughs> no, I, I mean, from a logical point, if... They're just curious about, like, well, what is your craft drive like? Well, this is, yeah. you have to work this thing. Oh, there's a wheel and a stick shift and uh, a clutch. Like, well, this is kind of fun. Yeah. I, um, wouldn't you want to fly UFO? Kind of. Yeah. But uh, I'd probably crash, I think. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be like Baby Yoda trying to fly. But the story, the car stories don't end there. <laughs> yeah. So back in Ohio, yeah, the UFOs, they just were not done with the motors yet. And on July 13th, at 11.30 p.m., Robert Richardson was driving around with his buddy, Jerry Quay, in the town of White House. And as they rounded a bend, a brilliant blue light sat in the middle of the road. And Richardson, he knew he was going to come into contact with this thing, so he closed his eyes, he slammed on his brakes, and he braced for impact. 
and the vehicle came into contact with something. He couldn't actually make out a craft of any kind. The light was too bright. But uh, when Richardson opened his eyes, whatever it was that had been there in the road was gone. The two men contacted the police, who really dismissed the account. Uh, The state police came out. They were able to find his skid marks in the road, but they weren't able to find anything else. There were no other traces of any kind. But the next morning, when Richardson went outside to examine his car, he found a chunk of metal stuck in the grill. And the hood had scratch marks on it, and part of the chrome on the bumper had been shaved away. On July 15th, two days later, he reported the sighting to Jim and Coral Lorenzen, the founders of APRO, Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. And he gave them their phone number and told them to contact him. On the night of the 16th, at approximately 11 p.m., Richardson received a visit from two friendly men. Okay, They drove up in a 1953 black Cadillac. And they stayed for about 10 minutes. They were asking him questions. It was kind of a pleasant conversation. And when they left, Richardson had the state of mind to write down the plate number. And he found that it wasn't a plate issued to any car that he knew of. So about a week after that encounter, two other men wearing black suits that looked, quote, foreign, arrived on his doorstep. They demanded that he hand over the metal and the bumper to him. But he informed them that he had given them to the Colorado Project, also known as the Condon Committee, which was had taken over the government's investigation of UFO reports at that time. And one of the men looked coldly into Robert Richardson's eyes and stated point blank, if you want your wife to stay as pretty as she is, you'd better get the medal back. After mm. stating this, the two men left in a 1967 Dodge sedan. He never saw them again. In March of 1968, tests were conducted on the metal by a man named Roy Craig. He found that the area where the chrome had been stripped away was composed of 92% magnesium. It was unusual, but nothing so out of the realm of the uh, ordinary to really make note of. But it should be noted that the only people that he told his story to were the Lorenzens, a researcher named Nils Paquette, and his wife. And that was it. So somehow these men, as they always do, found out, and they asked for the medal back. Mm. And that is the tales of two motorists hitting (laughs) UFOs and aliens with their cars. Did he actually give them... uh these uh, MIBs, the uh, any any materials that he had, they never came back. That's they, the no, they, they never came, came and back. said, "You better get back." Yeah. and he did yeah. get it back, but they didn't come back. Right, that always seems to be the thing. It's almost kind of an empty threat because they never usually do come back. In this timeline, yeah, <laughs> in well, well, this reality, yeah, but that's always an yeah. You're right. That is uh, one thing where they they make a threat, and uh, that seems to be the end of it, unless uh, people have disappeared somehow. But you never. Of course, you never hear about that. It's just that they they make this threat um, in, in a more material way. I have a friend of a friend did go to uh, Freedom Ridge, I think, uh, overlooking Area 51. Didn't trespass, just was up on the ridge and uh, then got a visit a week later mm-hmm. from some government looking men. And in that you could say like, they, yeah, they were able to see his license mm-hmm. plate. It just seems a little weird that they would follow up on that at all. Yeah. He didn't do anything. He wasn't taking pictures. He was just kind of... Uh, you know, on a day drive around the area, 
And it was just kind of that empty threat. It's like, yeah, you better not go up there again. It's like, I don't intend to. <laughs> I don't know what you want. It was just kind of weird. Like you would go that far or send out a yeah. regional person to go uh, to go rattle this guy's tree. Yeah, like, why can't it all be benign? Why can't they all be given a space pancakes? Like, <laughs> John do do? Solomon, was it, uh, who was it's the? It's Simonton. That's it, John <laughs> Simonton, uh, which uh, My, uh, weren't very good, apparently. I didn't get this out earlier. I think I mentioned it on last week's episode, or the last episode of the show, but I, I was about to get an introduction to Brandon Fugel, the current owner of Skinwalker, and it all fell apart because of the uh, the Rona, the coronavirus. Yeah. So like, I think because my friend that was going to make the introduction for me, who actually knows a lot of people that know him, he's also from Utah, but he currently lives in Kirkland in Seattle, which is like, was the original hotspot. And then uh, now, I guess he still wanted to make the introduction for me, but he's speculating it might not be the best time because Mr. Fugel is heavily involved and made of real estate. And because of what's going on with the virus, uh, developers and uh, real estate brokers are not in a great spot. So he's mm, like, yeah. I, I could do this introduction now, but you might want to wait. <laughs> so yeah. I think I'm going to hold off for a minute. Well, on that his, one. his approach here, I, you know, to finish up that earlier conversation is, is going to be different. And it, you know, ties in with what Rich was saying and that, uh, it's a much different approach to what Robert Bigelow and NIDS, the, uh, is it National Institute of Discovery Science? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what their their or a research body was doing, and I believe I heard this in uh, Ryan Sprague's interview with MJ Benias on Ryan's podcast, uh, Somewhere in the Skies. MJ Benias was talking about Brandon Fugel's approach and how it's going to be different. It seems like NIDS would do more kind of uh, experiments with the phenomenon, trying to get it to react where they would do things like uh, apparently they'd have like a plexiglass box and there would be children's toys inside, some electronic, to, to see if they could be uh, interacted with and then try and record that. Whereas Fugel's point is really more just about gathering data, gathering information. They're not going to try anything that's uh, going to provoke anything. They're not going to uh, poke the bear or the bee's nest. Uh, they're just going to try and monitor stuff. Yes, mm-hmm. Rich, you had a uh, you had a point you wanted to make. No, I'm just showing off my glass. I see. Oh, for the yeah, that doesn't really translate well for uh, the listening audience, but that's what no, Rich is doesn't doing. Matter. It's for the yeah. viewers. Yeah, okay. I think they know what we're talking about. My All wife right. is afraid of these glasses, by the way. Oh, she really, she, she really doesn't our, like our the Krampus one. The she's like, I don't want. Get me a drink, but not in that Krampus. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> but what's funny is she goes, she she's like, I, I'll take the, I like the one, I just like the one with the two guys. I'm like, you mean Scott and Forrest because they're real cartoons. Yeah. She's like, yeah, the one with the yeah with the with the two guys. I'm like, yeah, that's Scott. Yeah. You've met them. You've been on their show. That's yeah. them. That's Scott yeah. and Forrest. Um, you and she's like, yeah, th- those the one guys. with the two guys. <laughs> well, they, it's uh, the other one that seems kind of uh, benign is the uh, the disco wizard one, which looks oh, yeah. a little like a uh, Jeffrey Star, the, the YouTube. Yeah, he does <laughs> a little bit. But, uh, Little in bit. that realm. Well, listen, guys, we want to th- thank you so much for coming on. It was a fun show. Uh, if people actually listen to this one, maybe we'll do it again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> well, why am I always on the ones where it's like, okay, well, if, if anyone actually listens to this. No, you, I you tell you what, Rick, listen, uh, this is one thing, you know, and I wanted to talk a little bit of our inside baseball, even during this episode tonight. I, we do still want to get to, for uh, 2020, we'd love to cover um, – the Hungry Ghost, finally, yeah, and yeah, the yeah. Vertical Plane. Vertical Plane, and, okay, and, yeah. and also that chapter from 
I think it was, I can't remember which book it was from. That is uh, the one Hungry of those Ghost, two I believe. About yeah. the surgeon. Was that from the Hungry Ghost that, that was, came back well, and operated after he was dead on people? Yeah. Okay. Plus, I have I have another idea for an episode that, that may, I don't know, you guys may really be into it or maybe not. Maybe we've already talked about doing it, but I don't want to say what it is because it's a big one. Okay. But it, okay. but it yeah. absolutely fits under astonishing and legends. Ooh, so anyway, but we'll excellent. talk about it offline. Color me intrigued. <laughs> One last thing, uh, as an epilogue thing, Rob, what is that thing that was following the International Space Station uh, last month? That's uh, it's what I would call space debris. debris. I don't think it's anything. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> How do you know? I know. I'd love to tease Rob. I, you know, I'm speculating just as much as you are. All right, then. <laughs> it, was, it was intriguing, to say the least. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give it that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, thanks, fellas. Right. Uh, Rich is doing his Bender impression uh, from Futurama. That's the character. Yeah. The metal you guys, you got to check out the video. If you can get the video of this, it is riveting. <laughs> it is, uh, yeah. Two hours of <laughs> four dudes Super. in uh, well, it, five, yeah. bon and, and uh, in bon spirit, Jovi's yes. Uh, John Bon Jovi, who looks the best okay. out of all of us. But uh, yeah. thank you so much again for your time, and 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 uh, I, you know, feel a real uh, in these trying times. I feel a real sense of community needs to be kept up, and you guys have buoyed yes. my spirits uh, this week and, and into the next. So thank you so much for your time, and always interesting conversation. And uh, yeah, I hope to do this again not too long from now. All right. Yeah. Thanks, you guys. This was great. Yeah, thanks, guys. 40 and Buzzkills and Rich signing off. That's going to wrap up our first 40 and Buzzkills and Rich roundtable. We'll be back next week with a new show. Special thanks to both Rich Haddam and Rob Christofferson. You can find Rich's latest work, the Titan series, on the DC Universe app in the United States and on Netflix and other countries. And Rob Christofferson's podcast, Our Strange Skies, is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. My name is Adam Michaels. Hi, I'm Holly Otten. Hi, I'm William Otten, and I give permission to Astonishing Legends. M-I-C-H-E-L-S. Hi, I'm Becky Scott. And? Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. You guys ready to go back? Yeah, why not? Let's uh, give her a sync clap. Hang on. Make it a marker. Okay. Uh, Five, four, Four, three, three, two, 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 one. one. God, that's crazy how that cannot line up. It doesn't line up. No, it's it's going (laughs) over the magic of the internet. It's all over the place. As long as you can get it close, that's all that matters.